0: So tonight's uh, second live stream, uh, September 11th, 2001, the day that changed our country and world forever. 21 years later, no one has been held accountable, questions left unanswered, conspiracies running wild, all while the state continues to impose authoritarian tactics in the homeland while they invade and bomb foreign lands. After all this time, what do we know about this event? My guest today was in New York on the day of the attacks. Since then he has spent over a decade researching and deep diving into the geopolitics and foreign policy behind nine 11. All while trying to call out incorrect information and the conspiracy theories. There are important topics or these are important topics that have faded away and are being forgotten. Well, join me and my guest today as we deep dive into the truth, lies, and conspiracies of 9/11, ladies and gentlemen. Adam Fitzgerald, how you doing tonight, Adam? Thank you oh, for joining great. us. Thank
1: you very much for having me. Thank you, glad to be here.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's great. So, uh, let's see here. Did I forget anything in the the intro? That uh... oh no,
1: you did. Uh, just right now, That's right. <laughs> I was in New York when it happened, and um. I saw the second plane hit the South Tower at the time and uh, so did thousands of others all across the, uh, the rooftops of Queens and Brooklyn and Manhattan because uh, we have a uh, skyline that reaches lower Manhattan. We could see it clearly. And at the time, it was in Ridgewood, Queens at the time, and uh, went on top of the roof and there was, you know, thousands of people up on their roofs looking already at this point because they knew what happened at the North Tower and uh, saw the fireball come out of the uh, South Tower when uh, United Airlines 175 hit it.
0: Wow. Uh, I, I bet that's a sight you'd never forget.
1: No, it, it was... Uh, one thing when it when it did, when it impacted the South Tower, it was an almost an eerie silence, and you can hear audible gasps from the neighbors next to your roof but other than that they were all in shock at what they were saying um from that point on new york really tended to lost its uh machoism so to speak because uh, one thing about new york is they're very a proud uh society a proud people and um i could say with confidence that since then it seems that uh, it's changed that perspective, that psychology of the people itself. That's the one thing that has changed. It's no longer, uh, you know, confident in that sense. They, and plus, with the collapse of the World Trade Centers, that was even more resoundingly shocking than the impacts themselves, because nobody uh, ever thought about those towers even coming down, much much less bolted them. Uh, so. And then you had a third building, which fell, World Trade Center 7, which collapsed as well. So it caused an air of insecurity and confusion and fear. And once that dissipated, basically New Yorkers were, were in general sense, not the same
0: either. So I'm not really sure where to start this. It's such a... I assume we'll probably have you on for a few episodes because it's, I mean, uh, anyone watching, make sure and go check out his channel. If you uh, have not already, it is linked in the episode description. There is so much to this. Um, Actually, I I did have one idea. Um, I kind of wanted to get a couple of the uh, more popular conspiracies just out of the way. I just want to sweep those under the, well, not sweep them under the rug, but just, address them and get them out of the way so we can actually get to some real information on this if you're okay with that
1: no it's by all means sure
0: so i know one one of the biggest things is that a lot of people don't um you know believe a plane hit the pentagon Mm. um I, i know that's one of the biggest things and then um there were always questions around uh, if a plane had actually crashed in Pennsylvania. Um, everyone always brings up Tower 7, World Trade Center 7, um, or uh, the Thermite. Um, I mean, I've, I've even heard some super fringe people bring up, like, uh, they, they were unmanned drones, um, holographs, um, like, projections, which makes zero sense to me. Um, so do, do you want to kind of just address a couple of these and just get them out of the way?
1: Sure. And the biggest divisive issue within the truth movement currently and in the past uh fifteen years has been the Pentagon. And this is basically due to ignorance regarding uh the following intentional plane crashes and unintentional plane crashes. What most people are used to seeing with when it comes to plane crashes are planes that actually are trying to land uh, safely after a malfunction of sorts, whether it's uh, external or internal, or it could be a combination of both. Whereas the pilot is dumping the fuel, uh, whether it's a long flight or a short duration flight, and trying to land in a field, or as you saw recently in New York with uh, the movie Sully, where he lands in the ocean, in the, uh, the Hudson River. But on September 11, 2001, we saw an extra rare anomaly where the planes were crashing intentionally with uh, fully loaded for fuel for a plane that's going from the East Coast to the West Coast. And so because of these intentional plane crashes, they left behind very noticeable plane debris. You don't see large pieces of the wing, for example, where uh, whole engines, uh, there isn't no large pieces of the fuselage or even the nose cone of the plane. What we were left with, especially in Shankville and Pennsylvania, we were left with very few large, noticeable pieces of the plane. And there was hardly any visible human remains. Now, this is understandable at the time, but for these uh, fringe conspiracies to persist, even after 21 years in which you, the public, could have basically ascertained the difference between an intentional plane crash and an unintentional plane crash is either manufactured by people who still want to purport a larger conspiracy where there you know that didn't need to be or through general ignorance in the truth movement at the pentagon for example the pentagon didn't have cameras working on the west wall of the pentagon now that's because since 1997, the Pentagon in Wedge One, there's five wedges to the the building. In Wedge One, uh, it was near completion, but the cameras on top of the roof weren't working because that building was being renovated at the time when American Airlines Flight 77 impacted it. But you really didn't need a camera to see that a plane had crashed here because we have 86 people who are in the vicinity of Arlington who witnessed the plane crash directly into the building. And these are 86 people that said it was an American Airlines plane. I mean, it was flying low past the overpass and into Arlington County, into the Pentagon. Um, Pentagon, uh, American Airlines plane is very noticeable. It's silver, and it has the lettering of American Airlines on the side of it. On top of that, it did leave plane debris. I mean, there was landing gear found between A and E drive, which is the driveway inside the Pentagon on the first floor, and they did manage to find um, majority of the human remains, except save for the exception of I think two or three passengers. One uh, passenger they couldn't find human remains for was a child, which basically obliterated on impact. Now remember, American Airlines was flying over 530 miles an hour carrying 78,000 uh, pounds of fuel. That's 11,000 gallons. And it was going from uh, Dulles Airport to LAX, uh, Los Angeles International. So on top of the plane going five hundred thirty, approximately 530 miles an hour, it was carrying 78,000 pounds of fuel. In essence, this was a bomb. And so when it impacted the Pentagon, it basically exploded on impact. And the force of the explosion went through the entire first floor of the Pentagon, creating an exit hole between uh, A&E Drive. And because of this, all the force, the momentum of the, the explosion, everything that was from the back of the plane to the forward of the plane in less than a millisecond. And just that's how fast it hit. And everything that was in the back of the plane, which was the res- the people, the pastors and the crew that were hurtled in the back all were exited out into a Drive. And I had interviewed uh, the Pentagon incident commander, James Schwartz, at the time, um, when uh, uh, just a month ago. And he explained to me that the majority of the plane, the pieces of the plane were found at the uh, sea level, uh, against the sea level wall. Um, and some of the, uh, where the exit hole exited, you saw uh, parts of the landing gear and the fuselage that was found there. And the first responders from uh, Fort Boulevard, uh, Montgomery, and Fairfax counties who were involved with the search and rescue managed to uh, locate human remains of pastors and crew that was outlined through a uh, colored flag. And I think according to the book Firefight, written by Patrick Creed, uh, forwarded by James Schwartz, um, they had different color flags for like plane debris, which was a red flag. And human remains were colored with an orange flag. Um, when the FBI and uh, all these uh, first responders involving search and rescue uh, collected the plane debris and human remains, well, I mean, there is a conspiracy saying that all of this was planted. And this would have to be planted during the time underneath tons of rubble. I mean, it just is not possible at the time. Uh, and if people want to say that all the plane debris and all the uh, technical data that came from the flight data recorder box, which was found on September 13th. Now you're involving the National Transportation Safety Board. And on top of that, what about the um, the audio traffic communications between uh, Ronald Reagan Airport or from Indianapolis uh, data center, uh, New York data center for uh, American Alliance 11175? All of these. Um, Uh, data centers had to be involved and all the thousands of people that were involved in New York, Washington, Pennsylvania, regarding uh, search and rescue of the plane debris and human remains they would all have to be forcibly coerced to go with the story or directly involved with it. That's thousands and thousands of people that you would have to monitor for 20 years to make sure that they didn't go to the press and relate what really happened to them. And what really happened at those specific sites? Or is it easier just to have air defense not interfere with the hijackings of the planes and let them crash directly into the targets? And now you don't have to involve anybody and just have them crash into the Pentagon, into Shanksville, into the World Trade Centers. And that's much more manageable because you don't have to involve many people of the public and uh, local and state uh, uh When it comes to um, local state authorities, uh, as opposed to having a wider, more unmanageable speculation as to having a fake plane crash at the Pentagon or in Shanksville, for that matter, um, where you had over 600 first responders in Pennsylvania that was involved with that. And including, you know, just like I said, with the Pentagon uh, regarding air traffic control from New Jersey. New Jersey air traffic control and air traffic control in Cleveland as well. That was in trying to get in contact with flight 93 and that were in previous contact before the hijackings, uh, talking with um, the pilots themselves of those planes. So, I mean, there would have to be thousands of people involved, all the data, technical, physical, analytical data that would have to be manipulated involving way too many people. And, too many people of the last 21 years that would have to be still monitored to this day to make sure they went with the uh, conspiracy involving that.
0: Honestly, just putting it into perspective that way, it, it just, it makes my head hurt with, with just a logistical nightmare. It, it seems even if you could get everyone and everything lined up and ready to go, everything being executed so perfectly without any plan or uh without any disruptions, slip-ups or anything it just yeah it i don't know i i don't understand why people are so quick to believe a lot of these uh way more outlandish things when the the story itself is outlandish enough
1: i think it's basically because Many people want to give the government a little bit too much credit in terms of acting almost omniscient and omnipotent like a deity, whereas they could do whatever they want, whenever they want, without any type of oversight and without any fear of any type of investigation contrary to what they're doing. Now, yes. Does the government uh, conduct nefarious operations? Absolutely. Are there conspiracies involved with September 11th? Absolutely. But the conspiracies involved with 9-11 are overshadowed by the fringe conspiracies, as well as the media and state narratives in which they purported through the 9-11 Commission. Now, another thing that I want to bring up is the 9-11 Commission report, because this is often vilified as a fictitious report. Well, I would say that's not entirely correct. The 9-11 Commission report is 14 chapters, over 500 pages, and not everything in it is false but not everything in it is true. A lot of stuff that the 9-11 Commission report didn't report, so it's an incomplete report, as I would say, um, in that where they didn't report on the foreign intelligence rings that were here in the United States before 9-11, such as Saudi Arabia and Israel. The monitoring of bin Laden's satellite phone through the NSA and a house in Yemen, uh, which was monitored six years prior to the event. Well, that wasn't in the 9-11 Commission report. the Able Danger program, uh, which was uh, authorized by General Shoemaker and uh, Hugh Shelton, which was a covert program in, involving a collection of metadata involving um, terrorist operations here in the, in the United States. Uh, that program was not uh, uh, in, in the 9-11 Commission report, even though I've interviewed two people involved with that operation, Anthony Schaefer and Eric Kleinsmith, where they both said that the 9-11 Commission uh, interviewed Schaefer in his, uh, while he was in the military in the U.S. Army um, at Balgram Air Force Base in Afghanistan. And Philip Zelkow directly interviewed him and said what he told him about the Able Danger Program said, Oh, I'm going to use this in the 9 11 Commission Report. I'd like for you to call me. And then when Schaefer went back to the United States a year later, he tried calling Schaefer and I mean, he tried calling Philip Zelkow and he got no response. And the 9 11 Commission Report made no mention of Able Danger Program. Well, that there you have it. I mean, there's a lot right there that basically could alleviate uh, and elucidate the operations that were covered up by the State Department and the intelligence apparatus, as well as the FBI later on, revolving the extra hijackings on September 13th. And the only person I know that even cares to mention this is Nelson Martins, DJ Thermal Detonator, another great 9-11 researcher in his own right. Um all these operations are basically either covered up by the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, or the State Department, or a combination thereof. And what are they covering up? Well, they don't want the public to look at the greater geopolitical issues involving the wars and invasions of countries such as Iraq, you know, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, much later, Sudan, and Pakistan. And it's a war on terrorism, as they say. But no, it's a war on Islam and the preconceived enemies of who? Israel? Saudi Arabia and the United States. This is what the public doesn't uh, need to understand. And this is also not reported by any legacy media here in the States. And you wonder why. Well, they'll they'll definitely talk to the fringe conspiracy theorists like Kevin Barrett and Richard Gage and Stephen Jones, sure enough, because they'll talk about the banalities of September 11, 2001, and they don't know anything about the geopolitics of September 11, 2001. They won't talk about the operations I just told you about involving you know, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the NSA, and the and the, the CIA. No, they'll talk about uh, holograms. They'll talk about how a third building fell that day that nobody knows about. They'll talk about nuclear weapons underneath the, the World Trade Center. That's how the towers came down. Or if you're a follower of Judy Wood, invisible space beam shot from who knows <laughs> where out of the sky that can melt concrete, but can't melt human flesh, which, you know, is preposterous in its own right. All these conspiracies are basically meant to subjugate the real conspiracies of September 11, 2001, that myself and DJ Double day, and Ryan Dawson, and others have tried to come out over the years and basically tell the people about, hey, we need to concentrate on these issues. And these are the issues that are still having a ripple effect here in the United States to the current day. 9-11 is basically uh, a precept for the greater issues of, say, uh, the violation of civil liberties here in the United States and uh, of course the violation of civil liberties and to
0: the lives
1: of the people in the Middle East in this, you know, farce called the war on terror.
0: Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. Uh, the, the war on terror uh, the fighting of an idea um, it's kind of a uh, cheesy, I guess to bring it up, but uh, uh v for vendetta you know uh right. ideas are bulletproof and i i don't understand um how the public was so easily led astray um i mean i guess i shouldn't be surprised at least when this uh mask thing happened recently everyone was so willing to just bend over um but one thing I, I wanted to touch on just a little bit more just because it's something I, that I've heard personally about a lot more is um, building seven and the thermite explosions, um, you know, like painted on thermite on the uh, interior or, yeah, interior uh, skeletal structure. Um, obviously both of those just seem that the, the the communication around building seven seems extremely outlandish and the idea of all of this being pre-planned so far and so well that only It, it it just took thermite paint um to be able to bring the towers down um and i know that's some of what these conspiracy theorists push so what's the more logical explanation for some of these things.
1: You know, this is an area I never really touch because I'm not an authority on engineering or architecture, and a lot of people in the Truth Movement seem to basically want me to answer a question that I have no experience in, and it's fascinating because if I asked you, Jacob, about um, rocket propulsion for for spaceships, could you tell me about the to build, uh, how to build a a sea level grade uh, anti nuclear ring around, say, uh, Challenger One.
0: I'm gonna try and bullshit my way through it until everyone knows I'm a fake.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> so when people ask me about, say, hey, what's your opinion about World Trade Center Seven, One, and Two? Okay, I tell them the truth. I tell them really honestly. I tell them, listen, I I I don't know anything about physics, so I think. The people need to concentrate on. If you're going to say that the buildings came down from demolition, talk to David Chandler, talk to Wayne Coste, talk to John Wyndham, talk to uh, Ken Jenkins, or Stephen Jones or Niels Harrod That you know that proposed theories about uh, scientific theories about thermite or uh, improvised devices. You wouldn't want my opinion because I could tell you an opinion, but that's basically it. It's not based on anything other than my unqualified thoughts about this issue. I would rather talk about something that, you know, I study in, you know, uh, but this is one area I can't tell you. Now, if you ask my opinion, Jacob, about what brought down one, two, and seven, well, one and two, I think, not only came down from the fires and the weakening of the steel, but I, I believe... And like I said, take this grain of salt because I'm only giving you an an unqualified opinion that there were bombs going off at the basement levels. And what am I basing that on? I'm basing that on the testimonies of, say, William Rodriguez and the survivors who were coming out of the garage levels or working in the basement levels. Now, there are media reports and the few people that I know that post these issues like myself and DJ Thurman, Detonator and uh, other smaller channels is that... um, We have people that basically said they heard explosions. Now, hearing explosions is not proof of bombs going off. But we do have like media reports, say, for example, MSNBC's Rick Sanchez, who said that he reported that he got word from the NYPD that told him that they found a white van in the basement level. I couldn't tell you what level because he didn't mention either one, two, three or four. Um, Those are the basement levels of the World Trade Center. He didn't mention what level it was on, but he said that there was a white van packed with explosives. Now, there's been reports that there was a van at the George Washington Bridge that was packed with explosives, and that was false. Now, I'm not saying that that report was false. Now, um, I can't tell you whether those explosions were directly to improvised devices or super nanothermite or some other incendiary device, because I'm not the person to talk about this with. I've interviewed David Chandler. I've interviewed Wayne Costi. I've interviewed Ross Muir. These are people who are qualified engineers, um, people who are familiar with physics and mathematics. In fact, believe me, in high school, I was a 45 grade average when it comes to math. I'm (laughs) terrible at it. I'm very terrible. So that's the reason why, um, not to over, you know, jump your question, but like my opinion means nothing regarding what I, you know, know about one, two, and seven. I, I, I couldn't tell you, but um, those questions will be better off for the experts.
0: Well, no, I, I appreciate that. Honestly, that's, uh, I, I think that's uh, you doing your due, due diligence um, for this matter. So, just to kind of wrap up with the the conspiracy part of it, um, where is the main source? of these coming from now i i know there was a, like a lot of um sources like loose change alex jones uh so some of these were like really mainstream ideas um some of them have i i know there's still like one loose change guy still going i think Jason um so yes yeah. um but for the most part it seems like almost everyone else is pretty much abandoned um pushing yeah. some of these so is there still really that uh that grip that conspiracy grip on the community
1: oh yes i we we but you're right and a majority of these fringe conspiracy theorists now i want to also make a distinction so that the audience can know there there are there are two types of uh, conspiracy theorists. there's a fringe conspiracy theorist one who proposes irrational theories based on no evidence whatsoever and conspiracy theorists those who propose theories based on certain evidence that's relating to a specific incident that has merit and i'm a conspiracy theorist for 9-11 there's a lot of conspiracies uh, uh you know real anomalies regarding september of 2001 that are not irrational because i could give uh, as well as there's others like you know i mentioned uh ryan dawson and gg therm detonator and people like uh abby uh, robbie martin you know john gold and others um but um, yeah, there's a couple still alive. I mean, they're still around proposing theories. The most prolific right now, it seems, is Richard Gage, unfortunately. Um, he was the founder of Architects and Engineers, and he brought that group to prominence um, and stuck with what he knew. And he's an uh, an engineer, an architect, excuse me, um, an architect for many years, uh, well over 30 years, um, and spoke about what he knew. World Trade says 1, 2, and 7 and basically stuck with that, which is commendable. Uh, I don't fault him for that. But when he was uh, voted out by his own board committee for proposing outlandish theories, not just related to 9-11, but also COVID, um, they basically said he's giving us uh, negative press because they were going to interview Spike Lee, and that was gonna propel the architect engineers, but you know, Richard Gage couldn't help himself and talking about you know certain conspiracies that were false relating to 9-11 and COVID. Um, but COVID, I'll leave away because that's not the base of tonight's talk. Um, Richard Gage now has a new group and he's trying to build. It's 9-11 Unleashed. Um, and I would implore people to go and visit. Uh, I don't want to uh, bad rap him. But I think the theories and the people that he proposes are harmful to the truth movement. And there are all good people in the truth movement. There still are. I mean, it's not, I'm not generalizing the truth movement as a bunch of rabid, fringe conspiracy theorists, there is a, a group still active and they're very loud. And, it, you know, it's not just Richard Gage. And, you know, he proposes that he doesn't take a stance on the Pentagon Shankville, but he'll interview people who don't believe in planes or hijackers and people who believe in swap-over theories, like uh, Von Cleese, for example, who's not active anymore. He made a film many years ago called In Plain Sight, which was the first film I ever saw on 9-11. Um, Barbara Honiger, who is um, a board member of the lawyers committee for 9-11 inquiry. And she's been around for over 20 years proposing outlandish fringe theories, such as uh planes that were hijacked, but they didn't uh uh they didn't crash into the World Trade Center Pentagon Shanks because they landed in a uh a Cleveland air uh base and they were swapped for drone airlines. Um these are you know just outlandish theories not not you know evident at all and which is contradictory to the physical and technical Uh, evidence that has been around for, you know, since September 11, 2001. But uh, Jason Burmess, Bill Burmess for his own right, he basically tends to stay away from September 11, 2001. I think it's basically because of the negative impact of loose change over the years. And um, Dylan Avery and Corey Rose, a part of that um, producing team, they don't even talk about 9-11 much anymore. But Jason Burmess is still active. I mean, he does propose these swap over theories and, the planting of evidence at Shankville and the Pentagon and the shoot down plane at Shankville and stuff like that. And, you know, we, you know, I, I, myself and uh, Nelson Mars, DJ, Daniel, we, we've actually tried for years uh, past five, six years to try and get these people to debate on a moderated platform. You know, one that isn't uh, you know biased toward the skeptical or truth mentality, but they keep rejecting us. And Ryan Dawson has hmm. been doing it, i think 15 years 16 years long time and nobody's <laughs> going to debate these people and the reason why is because you can't debate something that is basically based on speculation or even outright fantasy right so i mean it wouldn't take more than five minutes to put in a room say ryan Dawson and jason Burmas, and it wouldn't take five minutes for dawson to basically you know uh debunk a lot of those points that Burma makes um Older voices that were so prominent in the conspiracy field, like Christopher Bolin, for example, who had his face, uh, who was a major face in the truth movement. He's not active anymore and hasn't been active since, I I believe, from other people like uh, co-researchers like Darren Harvey, who once told me that he isn't active since 2018. Um, Rebecca Roth, the uh, alleged airline pilot, uh, airline stewardess of over 25 years, who never worked for any airline industry at all who goes by fictitious names like Monica Gaynor, Corianne Ashley, uh, uh, Teresa something, uh, and has so many names, um, who basically, you know, proposes wild, wild ideas like Israeli art students in the World Trade Center, uh, which basically weren't even art students. They were Austrian art students. Meanwhile, the, or, the Israeli art students, which was a much bigger ring involving 250 to 300 people, she never mentioned. So you got to understand why she's doing this. Um, Davon Kleist, Craig McKee, you know, Citizens Investigation Team of Craig Ranke, Adam Ruff, and Aldo Marquis and Dominic DiMaggio. Um, uh, Judy Wood, uh, goodness gracious, I could go on and on and dozens and dozens of others. Albert Stubblebine, Morgan Reynolds, John Lear, people who think, you know, the planes are holograms and they send it to the World Trade Center. And all the cameras are basically manipulated to input uh, planes into the world traits and all the plane debris located in shankville pennsylvania and pentagon in new york they're all planted in front of thousands of people and it's just it it boggles the mind but it's also very frustrating at the same time so how do you sub you know how do we subvert it well it's basically a tsunami of disinformation from one side and on the other side there's another war going on it's a lack of information that's coming from the State Department, the FBI, and the intelligence services. So we're fighting a war on two fronts here. One is from the truth movement, the fringe part of the truth movement, uh, which is disinformation. And uh, the fight for information, which is coming from the intelligence apparatus and the federal government. So one war is basically a war we don't need, which is a war against disinformation. We'd rather have these people working with us to fight against Uh, the lack of information that's provided from us from the entities that were probably directly or indirectly involved with the attacks of September 11, 2001, and continued to cover up the uh, intelligence agencies and what they knew and continued to hide regarding allowing these attacks to happen. Or, if you want to go a little bit further, if we can get more information, maybe even facilitated the attacks to an extent. So, but as long as these fringe conspiracies continue to abound and to encapsulate and cover and blanket all of these anomalies and all these very good researchers I mentioned, we'll never get ahead. And movements such as the Lawyers Committee for Nine Eleven 9-11 Inquiry or Truth to Action Project or um, Architects and Engineers, I tend to you know, give them a little bit more leeway because they talk about the physics, right? But the real fringe conspiracies involving now Richard Gage and 9 11 Unleashed and Lawyers Committee for 9 11 Inquiry, who has board members like Barbara Honegger, Jane Clark, and you know now Richard Gage, they're not even lawyers. Why are they even board directors for a law firm? Um, and propose these outlandish theories. They'll basically subvert their own movements and their own agendas because um, they propose these wild, uh, fantastical beliefs thinking that these are the real anomalies of 9-11. Now, whether you want to say this is intentional, I won't go that far. I just think that a lot of these people are basically ignorant. And the few people that I think are doing this intentionally have very large uh, audiences like Alex Jones. You know, I I think that he's intentionally misleading the public because he has a very large audience. Small audiences like Richard Gage and Barbara Honiger, you know, they're, they're basically... You know not reaching enough people to basically be a threat i
0: i I agree with Jones um, which you know he puts on a, a really great front, so you know it's at first it was hard for me to hate him, but it's well and I don't hate him now, but it's it's interesting because he has access to a a lot of this information. Um, so it's not like he doesn't know it doesn't exist um I, I i just don't see that being a possibility um so with with all of that set aside really where's the starting point for the actual truth um, does it start overseas does it start here
1: that's a very Broad answer, and I'll try to answer it the best I can. There's a number of ways we could start with. Uh, We could start with inside the United States, older Arab organizations. uh, For example, uh, DJ Thumbna Detonator and Nelson Martins, for example, covers the Abu Nadal organization, which is a secular Arab terrorist group that was involved with uh, terrorist operations abroad, say in Italy and Germany and Israel and uh, Spain, um, that was conducting terrorist attacks. Meanwhile, the intelligence services uh, had had a hand in monitoring these groups. And Abu Dhabi basically didn't deny when he said that he worked for uh, when it was uh, labeled that he worked for Israeli intelligence or Libyan intelligence. He didn't deny these charges and basically said that, you know, if I did, uh, you know, you wouldn't know about it anyway. Um, also, as well as inside the United States, we have older a and rings uh, that did exist in the uh, early mid 1980s. Um, but if for, for people that want to know more about these issues, I would suggest uh, uh, reading more about Patrick Seale, um, uh, DJ Thurman, that name is prolific, uh, writing about this and also creating con- uh, content on his Patreon page uh, regarding this issue as well. Um, he does upload videos for free on his YouTube channel. I think it's true to TV. Um, it, so there's very few people that are covering this to the current uh, uh, basis uh, regarding uh, terrorism and intelligence agencies. That's basically the 1979 Afghan War of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan where we saw a lot of the major players of the late 20th century such as Osama bin Laden, Ayman al swahiri as well as the the CIA and the NSA and the, uh, the intelligence uh, agencies of Saudi Arabia and Israel and Pakistan, all involving pumping Billions of dollars into a large operation that was headed by the CIA, called Operation Cyclone, the most, the largest, most successful CIA operation in its history, involving uh, the sending of funds and military-grade weaponry through the Pakistan ISI because they didn't want to do it directly in fear of a third world war with the Soviet Union. So they conducted this COVID operation involving the Pakistan ISI, where they trained and they funded a lot of these. Afghan groups. And later on, when these groups were basically getting decimated, the Arabs started coming in. And even though they represented a very small percentage of the fighting force, a lot of these Arab fundamentalists that were going by these uh, Wahhabi uh, radical ideology, uh, these um, uh, defensive jihad that was pre- preached by uh, notable jihadists like Abdul Azam, Osama bin Laden, Ayman al um, uh Saeed Imam Al-Sharif, or his nickname is Dr. Fadel. all of these imams, uh, basically these uh, terrorist imams, uh, self-appointed uh, imams, uh, they're not recognized by any of the Sunni and Shia majority as real colleagues, uh, leaders of the Islamic communities. So these people basically created these precepts of defensive jihad, which, by the way, were monitored by the intelligence apparatus long before terrorism groups even existed. That's one area you could basically look at. Um, look at the when Bin Laden actually went to the Sudan, relocated to the Sudan, and created a group, this group that was basically from an Arab uh, training camp called al-Masada. And from the Arabic, it's translated to the lion's den. And it's all basically Arabs training at a camp. And because they Afghans didn't like Arabs, they didn't allow Arabs to have training camps built for them. They had to get... Uh, Uh, approval from Afghan warlords like Abdul Rasul Sayyaf or Gulbuddin Hekbatar. But Osama bin Laden carried a lot of weight. And because he did, he was allowed by Abdul Rasul Sayyaf to build an Arab training camp in Afghanistan, which created, which a lot of these founding members went on to relocate with him to Sudan, and they created Al-Qaeda, the base. It's translated to the base. But is it a base as many conspiracy theorists, like a database? No. The base was coming from al-Masada training base. So a lot of these people basically went with him to the Sudan along with these Egyptian radicals like Ayman al zawahiri Abu Hafsa al-Masri, who's later called the Muhammad A lot of these Egyptians brought their ideology and said that we need to go to war with the United States and Israel and the West. And so even though Al-Qaeda wasn't created as a terrorist organization at first, they later became a terrorist organization through the manipulation of certain people to bin Laden and as well as the intelligence agencies that were monitoring these people. Well, we're talking 10 years prior to the events of September 11th, 2001. And so they started monitoring bin Laden's satellite phones, the NSA. So from 1992 till he got rid of his satellite phone in 1998, that's six years of intelligence gleaned from the NSA. And not to mention that signals intelligence regarding human intelligence. That's the CIA. Um, which were monitoring Bin Laden in 1993, 94, and when he went to the United, when he went to Afghanistan, in 96, the CIA started listening to an Al Qaeda communications hub located in Sana'a, Yemen, the capital of Yemen, Sana, and this became that, uh, a house, a global uh, signals house for Al Qaeda, all in, all monitoring intelligence. So the NSA were monitoring that phone as well, and the CIA was monitoring the people coming out of that house. From 1996 to 2001. So now that's another area you could look into. And listen, what do you think they were talking about on those phones? Were they talking about uh, Kim Kardashian or the Yankees? I would submit to you that these Arab fundamentalists were talking about operations. We're talking about, say, the 1998 East Africa bombings or uh, the USS Cole bombing or the Millennium Plot or even September 11, 2001 in the future. So not just on Bin Laden's satellite phone, but to the House in Yemen. And this is an overwhelming amount of data that was collected by the NSA. In fact, later on, um, the former deputy station chief of the Bin Laden issue station, codenamed Alex Station, Michael Scheuer, would even say to the Associated Press that the NSA was the over, had overwhelming amounts of metadata that they were considered the gold mine, the gold standard. Of, of data relating to Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Thomas Drake, the former senior executive of the NSA, went on later to say that the NSA had gathered so much metadata, that's emails, phone calls, and uh, and um, text messages on phone calls, that they alone could have stopped 9-11 from even happening altogether. That's how much information they had. Now, I'm not even mentioning the CIA. I'm not even mentioning the Israeli Mossad. Who were monitoring the hijackers inside the United States, or the Saudis who are monitoring the, the hijackers out west, um, the Israeli Moving Front Companies, the Israeli art student ring. Um, all of these you could look into as well. But all of this that I just told you, Jacob, is basically non existent in the realms of the fringe conspiracy uh conversation. And it certainly is not going to be brought up by the federal government because that's who's. Covering up for them. So, like I said before previously, that the problem starts not with just the cover-up by the State Department, the CIA, the is you know, Israel, Saudi Arabia, but the cover-up indirectly, because they don't realize they're doing it, with the fringe conspiracies that are basically blanketing from the public all of these things I just told you about. And I think right there is the problem one is a problem of intentional deception and one is a problem of unintentional deception by the fringe conspiracists in the truth
0: yeah so it's kind of just a uh, a happy byproduct because they can exploit it by making certain moves they being the, the the federal government being able to not say certain things or Saying other things, being able to lead these people on to discredit the whole the whole movement, right?
1: Oh, it's great discre- I mean, I had a discussion. I'll, I won't mention his name, but I had a discussion with a prominent truth advocate who runs the biggest Facebook group, and um, I'll say his name. His name is gene Laratand. It's not the secret, but he kicked me out of the group because I wouldn't uh, swear loyalty or 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 back or support. The lawyers Committee for 9-11 inquiry. So he kicked me out of the group. Now I'm on Facebook. I'm only on there trying to reach uh, a former FBI agent in Minnesota and to get him on for a a future interview. That's the only reason why I've deleted my Facebook profile. But I'll be on there for a little bit, like two or three more days, and I'll delete it. But he kicked me out of the group. Now I don't care. But if that's going to be your measure of standards regarding um, advocating for the truth, well, then your standards, you don't have any. Because I told them, I said, I'm not going to support a group that basically subverts its own message and agenda in fighting for the truth by employing people who propose fringe conspiracy theories, like Barbara Honecker or Richard Gage or Jane Clark. And Jane Clark's actually a lawyer. Uh, But I can't do that on my own accord. I can't support somebody who uh proposes false theories on good standard i won't do it i never will and if it comes at the behest of me getting banned or or ostracized from uh uh, an online viral group so be it but i'm not going to show support or show deference for people who propose outlandish theories um and that's i think uh the major reason why these theories persist because in the very early days of the 9-11 truth movement you had the old truther guards who basically didn't propose these theories, but were more worried about quantity rather than quality, because they wanted to build their movement on a number of people. But it came back to bite them because the people that they allowed in their movement, like Barbara Haniger or Christopher Bulian and Alex Jones and Jim Fetzer and you know Judy Wood and all these people, who started over hijacking—not you know to make light of it—but hijacked the movement to propose these theories. And what happened was, uh, many of the earlier truth proponents like uh, John Gold and Paul Thompson and Kevin Fenton and the, the the widows of 9-11, as well as David Chandler and Wayne Cossey, all of these people basically either left because of frustration of these outlandish theories that were now becoming at the forefront of the movement or basically are still trying to remain relevant, but they are being ostracized and vilified. By the people who overtook the movement, they helped to the build. And David Chandler and Wayne Coste, for example, back in 2017, they did a five hour presentation about what happened at the Pentagon. And Wayne Coste did it. And David Chandler narrated it. And it was basically one of the best presentations I ever saw regarding either physics or geopolitics and relating to 9 11. It was a thorough uh, scientific presentation, five hours. And it's still up on David Chandler's page. And I would suggest people look at it. And he presented it to a group called 9-11 Consensus Panel, which is basically a panel of, of, I think, 12 to 14 people who basically all are biased anyway, because they just looked at 9-11 and said, inside job, instead of looking at 9-11 with a clean slate and trying to find evidence for an inside job. Now, needless to say, that the uh, consensus panel not only didn't have any answer for Wayne Coste, but because he did this, he was vilified. By the likes of people like Barbara Honegger, Craig McKee, and his cultish uh, 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 people that are behind him. And I won't even mention their names. People like Craig Ranke and Aldo Marquis at CIT, who are now irrelevant. But back then, they vilified David Wayne Costi, And they basically got pushed out of the truth movement, basically. Now, even though that they're still semi respected by the older proponents of the truth movement, But to the newer uh, truthers and to the people who are victims of these people, they have now vilified these people as saying they're shills or working for the government or sellouts. And basically, David Chandler and Wayne are hardly that. These are reputable people. Now, whether you want to say that they were wrong at the World Trade Center, I couldn't tell you that. I, I basically trust them because they're experts in their fields. So I can't give you a yes or no answer. But their work at the Pentagon, I know is right because it fits with the evidence presented uh, as it was well, found on the Pentagon itself. And they just did this year a, a 10-hour conference headed by Richard Gage at 9-11 Unleashed. And they, they had these theorists like Barbara Honegger who proposed one theory, Craig McKee and Adam Ruff, who proposed another theory, and Thierry Mason, the godfather of the small hole at the Pentagon, 16 feet old, who he still espouses to this day. He was allowed to speak. And at the end, they had David Chandler Wayne Costin. And so I asked, you know, Gene Laratonda and Richard Gage, you know, did they come to a conclusion? And even after all that, they said no. Even after all that. So that's my problem with the fringe conspiracy movement itself, is that even though they don't realize what they're doing, they are intentionally, unintentionally, basically doing the work of the federal government, allowing for these fringe conspiracies to basically blanket the actual anomalies of 9-11 involving, say, the CIA, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the NSA. Because if there are no hijackers on these planes, all the operations involving what I just told you about, involving intelligence in the early 1990s with the NSA, with the CIA, with the Israeli Mossad and the Saudi General Intelligence Directorate, that's the intelligence arm of Saudi Arabia, all of these people that were involved with monitoring the hijackers Inside the United States and abroad, all of this doesn't exist. Because if there are no hijackers, then there are no operations. Because what operations? Who are they monitoring? Who are they following? Nobody. And so I've been, um, you know, myself, I've been trying my due diligence and trying to elucidate this message to people. And it's very hard to do that when you have people, like 50 or 60 people that propose these outlanders do.
0: Yeah, that's extremely devastating um, to ever attempting to try and find an answer. Um, that that mission's already difficult enough. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I guess as, as far as the direction, just pretty much just throw a dart and just go, right? Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's... You could start
1: on uh, a number of ways. You could start with the 1979 oh. Afghan Soviet War. You could start with, say, the Bajenka plot of 1995, which was a transnational, inter, international transna- transatlantic bombing plot where the um, uh, it was constructed by uh, one of the leading suspects of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, Ramzi Youssef, and his uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who is, the un- who is allegedly the mastermind of 9-11. Um, which they were going to put 12 Timex bombs underneath the seats of these planes and have them all explode over the Pacific, as well as a secret part of that operation, which was hijacking 10 planes and have them crash into, say, the World Trade Center, Pentagon, the White House, Sears Tower, Golden Gate Bridge, and a nuclear facility in other areas of the United States. Um, that's where 9-11 came from, the Bajenka plot. You could start there. You could start with the 1993 World Trade Center bomb. 1993 World Trade Center bombing is an often, unfortunately often forgotten incident, which Ramzi Youssef and Omar Abdel Rahman, who were basically monitored by not just Israeli intelligence, but also the CIA and the FBI. And so while that was happening, you know, who knows what intelligence they were gleaming off of uh, from these individuals. And they also had an FBI informant named Imad Salem, who was a, a former Egyptian officer, involved with the group in um, a place called Al-Farouk Mosque, which was basically being run by Omar Abdel Rahman, who's part of a Egyptian radical fundamentalist group called Gamma Islamiyah. And he knows who Dr. Amin el is. Now, they both disagree on tenets of uh, regarding terrorism itself. And I won't get into that here. It's a long discussion. But they knew each other. And basically, these are the people that were running, like Osama bin Laden and Ramzi Youssef. Now uh you could start with 1992 World Trade Department. You could start with the ANO, Abu Nadal organization, uh, regarding what led to these the the evolution of terrorist terrorism, which started from there. You could start with uh the CIA and the NSA monitoring uh the the uh Hamburg cell or the uh, Khalid Al-Midar al Hazmi in uh, in California. Um you could start there too. But I would suggest starting at a distant point in time to make sense of all the terrorist operations uh, that p- uh, preceded from it. So that's what I would suggest someone does. The, the, the more In order to understand the future, one must go to the past. And so I would suggest starting as far back as you can to get a better understanding of all of that, which is basically emanating from it. Just like in the future, 20 years from now, I will probably, if I'm living that long, I will tell people to start from 9-11 to understand what's happening from that point forward to about what is it, 2000 to 2040. So, but yeah, that, I mean, that's a lot of ground to cover. I understand. And to understand it, you have to get a like a general understanding of Middle East foreign policy, Israel, U S foreign policy, Saudi Arabia, U S foreign policy, the CIA, the NSA, how they function uh, uh, regarding signals and human intelligence, um, what is the origin of Wahhabism? That's radical Islamic fundamentalism. Um, who who uh, supports that? Um, the understanding of um, just how uh, uh, the State Department works when it comes to the Pentagon and imperialism around the world. I'm not telling you to be an expert on this. Uh, for example, I'm not an expert. I, I just have more time to read. That's all. That's what I tell people. And so I could do it, but I know a lot of people can't because they got families, they got you know uh, two jobs, and they can't do it. I got a job, but I, I could spend five hours to six hours a day reading material and watching uh, relevant video to it because I'm single and I'm, I'm afforded that time. But if you can get an hour, and if you're lucky, you get an hour and a half, two hours, you can learn so much within that hour if you just study the pertinent topics, which are unfortunately ignored altogether by the fringe conspiracy movement of 9-11. And of course, you know, the legacy media of the United States and the federal government who are not going to give you that information because they don't want you learning about it. So that's what I would tell people.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. Um, just curious, how much time do you have? Uh, I'm pretty much free, so.
1: I'm, so am I. I'm um, at your service. All
0: right. Well, so let, let, let's start breaking into some of this. Like I said, I'm sure we'll have you on for a few different episodes and, uh, you know, get into some of the weeds here. I know you and some of the, some of the other people who really dive into this. I mean, you have an entire channel dedicated to this. So that's, you know, that, that tells you how deep this goes and how many connections and twists and turns it takes. Um. All right. I, I think I would. Uh, let, let's start with Israel and some of the connections that come from there, because I know that there's a lot. Well, first of all, there's just a lot going on in between their country and our country. Hmm. So so what what's some of their more major roles um, in this situation?
1: Well, with, with September eleven, two thousand one, 2001, it's the less evident of all the uh, anomalies of 9-11. And it was made to be that way. They're much more careful. Um, Israel has had a long standing relationship with the United States that goes back to the early 20th century. And it basically comes from uh, the link between evangelical Christianity, which is the largest Zionist movement in the world, here in the United States, and which is basically the power behind the State Department, the Pentagon, the highest officials are basically evangelical Christians that come from like Oral Roberts University, Liberty University. You know, these are the people that uh, the White House hires, so it's like staffers and advisors. And the future uh, Pentagon officials, they come from, you know, the military outposts and schools and universities. And Israel basically is uh, a country that depends on uh, nationalist ideals, Zionism, which is a nationalist ideology the united states is considered secular but at the same time the large vote the largest voting block inside the united states is coming from the evangelical christian community and that's in its way they share that nationalist uh, proponents now when it comes to the theological debate they differ entirely there's nothing similar about it i mean all you have to do is read the bible of the old and new testaments you could see the the clear divisive issue between the tenets of say the Book of Moses, or the uh, the the first books of Genesis and Deuteronomy, as opposed to the uh, the New Testaments and the Apostles, but the 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 clear solidifying link between Israel and the United States is coming from the nationalist point of view, the far right extremist point of view, and you know this started back in the early 19th century, that goes all the way back to Rothschild and. Uh, Um, Louis Brandeis, who who basically was the major influence in allowing uh, the Zionist state of Israel to become a country. Now, this is, of course, uh, not just the United States, but Great Britain under the Balfour Declaration, uh, which allowed for Israel to, Palestine to become Israel. And so what happened was you had a massacre, uh, the Nakba and the uh, Intifada that came from it, uh, which slaughtered, you know, tens of thousands of people, massacres. You know, that were basically um, ignored in history. So, what came from this? Well, the United States basically showed some deference to it. Now, at first, the United States basically was a little bit appalled at Israel, and they weren't very strong allies at the time. And at the same time, in 1936, Saudi Arabia, through King Ibn Saud, had uh, delivered uh, the first face to face meeting with President Wilson in which uh, they met aboard uh, on a battleship. Um, I forgot the name of the battleship that they were on uh, and basically solidified the relationship. And the only reason why they became allies was because the United States, through their own company, oil company called Standard Oil, had discovered oil in the rich plush oil fields of Southern Arabia. And that basically became the motivating factor for the United States to become allied with Saudi Arabia. But with Israel, it's a much more deeper meaning, a much more... um, Uh, in altruistic meaning regarding their existence and their existence is twofold. One is based upon the nationalist principles of both countries. And two, it's basically to um, come to light the theological, more radical theological beliefs, because according to evangelical Christianity, Israel is considered the place for the battle of Megiddo or the final war, which will bring about the, the coming of Jesus Christ. For Israel, it's basically about uh, the destruction of the world, uh, where the Mashiach comes, and basically the third temple is built. The Mashiach comes, and when he comes, basically enslaves for every Jew, they get five hundred Gentile slaves. And the theolo- there's your theological difference. It just there's no um, commonality between the two, but it's almost like this quasi uh, alignship between the two it exists in very strange, very unique, very uh, very um, um, morbid. Uh, a line ship there however, with that being said, through that and through all that the United States gives Israel and Saudi Arabia and we give a lot of money to both as well as weapon, weapon military aid as well and this is going back approximately 70 years okay that's a lot now Israel doesn't spend that much money with the United States Saudi Arabia does and the reason why is because we have no direct uh, um, commonality with the country whether it's domestic issues or religious issues. So they know this, and they're shrewd, the kingdom, the, the family line. So they know this. So they'd rather spend tens of millions to try to influence Congress to enact legislation or to go to war to certain countries that you know that are basically enemies to Saudi Arabia. With Israel, they don't need to spend that much money because through their organization, that's the American Israeli Public Affairs Committee, or APAC, they basically can subvert the house the senate the democrats the republicans and force them to write decrees about their loyalty to israel and basically if they don't follow through they'll never get to that position in congress because a lot of these people are basically just small delegates in in states like north dakota or north or north carolina and alabama or you know minnesota and they're trying to get ahead but they can't get ahead if they don't show deference to certain israeli policies and that's not A conspiracy. That's actually true. So, with that being said, they don't have to spend that much money. And also, Israel is the only uh, country on earth where they have an annual conference. It's called the APAC Conference. Uh, That's dedicated, that's actually where it's mandatory to arrive. It's not where you can't disagree and not show up. It's mandatory to arrive and to attend this function. And if you don't, you're basically put like on a blacklist of sorts that, you know, there's no blacklist, but you're blacklisted of sorts where you won't get if you're a delegate of certain states you won't make it to like say governor or to the you know to the white house and act as a secretary of state or secretary you won't get that far and so with that being said everything i just told you israel continues to spy on the united states and this goes back decades and decades and um you know i won't i won't bore you with this history but Pre 9-11, one of the largest Israel intelligence agency spy rings in history, it's still the largest spy ring in history, was the art student ring that was existing inside the United States, mostly in the West, the Southwest, and the Northeast. States like California, Texas, New York, New Jersey, Florida, um, uh, Georgia, Tennessee. Oklahoma, a lot of these states basically had arrested a lot of these art students. Now, the art student ring would employ um, two men, one woman, to go to uh, um, a house of a a drug enforcement agent or an FBI agent. And what they would do is they would sell cheap art to them, you know, art. But according to certain authors who wrote on this, there was like listening devices on, on, on on this art pieces. And they weren't very elaborate art pieces. They were just trying to sell art to these people at these homes of these people. And what they were trying to do is basically listen to what, you know, was going on in the homes of these people, of the homes of the DA and the FBI. And it involved over 250 people to 300 people, all operating throughout the West, Southwest, and Northeast. And this is going on from 1998 to 2002. And so this, you know, it existed for quite some time. Fox News is the only one to report on this, and it came through a Carl Cameron expose, which was supposed to be a 10-part series, but basically got shut off after three, and I wonder why that happened. Not to mention, there was another intelligence agency ring I told you about, which was the moving front companies, Urban Moving Systems, Classic International Movers, uh, there was other movers like Max Max Movers, White Glove Movers. These were all basically uh, legitimate moving companies, low-rent moving companies that had, like, Israelis working inside as temporary uh, employees for the summer or for the fall. And all of these people basically in the art student ring, in the movie front companies, overstood their visas. These were temp visas. And they weren't supposed to work because you're supposed to get a separate work visa for that. So they, you know, they committed a crime. So throughout the 90s, they were actually listening to the homes of the FBI, the DEA, And some even say the State Department, in the White House of the Clinton administration, for example, through a PROMIS software. And there's an intelligence unit called Unit 8200, which is a very covert signals intelligence uh, organization in the Israeli military. That is, at the time in 2000, 1999 to 2001, was a very small unit. It's now huge. And so this unit basically would listen to the Uh, the intelligence signals operations that were operating in full inside the United States throughout those years. So what happened to all these people? Well, they were arrested on visa violation charges. And this is key. This is the reason why I brought this up, is because as long as they were violating just visa, they can no longer be held in detention by, say, the FBI for federal charges, because that's a crime for the INS, the Immigration Naturalization Center. So the FBI, even though they arrested these people, had to hand them over to the Immigration Naturalization Service because the crime that they committed wasn't espionage, even though it was. It was for visa violations because that's the first crime they committed. And because of this, every single person involved with these intelligence rings were deported back to Israel. So that would mean that that would take a shrewd mentality to think that all of the people spying on the United States, espionage, illegal espionage. That may have had prior intelligence that could have stopped maybe even 9 11. Maybe. I say maybe because we don't know for sure. But if they're following members of the Hamburg cell, if they're following the associates of these people, what do you think they were talking about? Right? So I'm not saying that they did for sure. Who knows? But I would have smoked this fire. But because they violated visa charges, they were deported back to Israel. So that means the FBI, the 9 11 Commission, the Joint House Inquiry or any type of federal inquiry investigating the 9 11 attacks can't speak to these people because they're deported back to Israel. And that would mean that this long standing relationship with Israel comes at a cost. Because who do we go to war with? Did we go to war with Saudi Arabia or Israel? No. We went to war with Afghanistan, Iraq, and later on Libya, Syria, and now we're threatening war with Iran. Who are the enemies of these people? Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United States. So I'm not proposing any fringe conspiracy here. This is basically factual historical information, what I'm just telling you. And, you know, if you want to research what I say and, you know, want to prove what I say, I, I implore people to do so. Because everything I'm telling you is basically open for the history books to for you to learn. But as long as it's not talked about, it's not going to be brought up.
0: wow yeah that's well i i know the israel issue is uh pretty touchy um that can go all kinds of different directions i mean ryan has been smeared in so many so many ways because of uh you know coming out with some of the truth behind the connection between the united states and israel um which I'm, I'm not really sure why. I know there's a lot of speculation as to uh, more they call the shots and we just pretty much um, are their uh, sergeant in arms or their security, um, which from how I see things on the surface doesn't sound entirely wrong. Um, so where, where do the uh, the Saudis fit into all of this? Where where do they start coming in? Well,
1: I mean, the Saudis have a just about the same time frame as the Israelis. Uh, you know, the early 1930s, We formed an alliance with Saudi Arabia, and um, from there we regulated the oil market for the Gulf, and we continue to do so. Um, it's the only commonality we have with them now. As and this is due to the fact that. Uh, they have a repressive ideology that is uh, Wahhabism, which is, uh, in itself, Saudi Arabia was created on two precepts, which is basically a religious precept, Wahhabism, and a military precept, which is run by the kingdom. And this alliance, this monarchy, has lasted since the 1700s. And before Saudi Arabia, it was called the Emirate of Dariya. And it was created as the first Saudi state between the founder of Wahhabism Muhammad ibn al-Wahhab and the king the king of Emirat Diriyah, which later, I mean uh, the king of Saudi Arabia, Ibn Saud and Ma- uh, Muhammad Ibn al-Saud. And from this partnership, basically uh, along with the British help, again, the British are involved with this because they basically uh, helped give weapons to Ibn Saud, the king of, and took over, took the, the cities of Hijad and Najid and when they took over these cities uh, from the, um, um, the the Karazites, they basically created Saudi Arabia. So no longer was it the Yemen de of Judea created Saudi Arabia. And because of this, Standard Oil went to visit uh, Saudi Arabia because they needed oil for uh, World War I. They basically wanted to create, uh, control the oil market. And they found that Saudi Arabia had vast amounts of oil fields that were untouched, unreserved untouched oil fields. And so they were the first uh, country to find these oil fields. And so because the United States was a leading world power, Saudi Arabia basically decided to allow the United States to um, build a military base, uh, help them build a military air base in uh, Riyadh, and um, give them armaments, military aid throughout the decades. This didn't stop. Even though there were presidents of the United States that enjoyed the uh, uh, oil market and the profits that were coming from it. They basically were a little bit reserved about who they were dealing with because, you know, these people were basically alien to them. I mean, we shared nothing in common with uh, these Wahhabi uh, ghouls of the, the kingdom itself. Um, but the only president uh, that basically, well, one of the, one president in particular that basically expanded upon military aid to Saudi Arabia was President Carter. President Carter actually um, showed more deference to Saudi Arabia than he did with Israel. Reagan, uh, when he uh, became the president, he reversed that rule, became more deference to Israel than he did with Saudi Arabia. But that doesn't mean that he showed deference to Saudi Arabia that he didn't um, um, continue like weapons aid sales to Saudi Arabia. No country, by the way, on the face of the earth buys more military grade weapons than Saudi Arabia, and that's because uh, they don't have like a very formidable military at all. So all the weapon, a majority, I, I would say 90% of their weapons are U.S. weapons right now, currently. And, you know, this is from decades and decades of uh, us being allied with them. And so this shrewd and very, very unorthodox uh, uh, alignship with Saudi Arabia is only predicated on uh, as long as we create, as long as we regulate the oil. Now, in the 1970s and 80s, Saudi Arabia finally uh, got, you know, the realization that they are the ones that could control the oil market because they don't have to necessarily sell the majority of their oil to the United States, but that they could stop oil production. And we saw this with the uh, oil tax in the 1980s, whereas oil went, oil prices went through the roof, not just oil prices but gasoline prices as well. So the United States basically said, well. You know, we better acquiesce certain things to Saudi Arabia. One thing was the Palestinian issue regarding Israel. Even though Saudi Arabia doesn't really care about Palestinians, they want to make believe and give to the Arab world. Yeah, we really do care, but they really didn't. They really didn't force the issue. But Saudi Arabia and Israel—I mean, Saudi Arabia and United States—basically had a very tentative relationship, which grew from the late 1980s all the way to the current point. And so, Saudi Arabia pre-9-11, had a number of espionage contacts inside the United States. Now, I'll keep it relevant to 9-11. And I did a number of videos that came out uh, last month regarding the latest cache of FBI files, regarding now, you know, regarding for the first time what we knew all along, that um, uh, an entity, an organization, in Saudi Arabia, was funding a CIA, a Saudi Arabian espionage contact inside the United States, who is funding two al-Qaeda operatives who were involved with 9-11. That's Khalid al-Midar and Awaf al hazmi who were involved with the hijacking of American Airlines Flight 77, which crashed the Pentagon. Now, the agent that was helping them was, his name is Omar al-Bayoumi. Omar al-Bayoumi continued to deny that he worked for a Saudi government official. And for the first time, uh, with these latest cashier files, we now have the government entity, uh, which is the Saudi Arabian, Air National Transport uh, Group, uh, which basically uh, which, uh, was headed by Rashid al Daoud, uh, Daoud al Rashid, who basically hired al Bayoumi in 1975 to work for them. And so Bayoumi, who lied to the 9 11 Commission and to the FBI about working for any government contract and giving money to hijackers themselves due to due this agency, well, now we know it's a lie. And not just Omar al Bayoumi. There's another agent named Osama Basnan. Osama Basnan was a much more militant person than Al-Bayoumi, Bayoumi, who is a very affable individual. Osama Basnan actually threw a housewarming party in the early in 1990 for the Egyptian radical I named previously, Omar Abdel Rahman, who was involved with the Landmarks Plot and um, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. But he was getting money from his wife. His wife is Ma'wida Douijak, who was getting money from another woman named Haifa bin Faisal, who is Haifa bin Faisal. She's the wife of former U.S. Saudi ambassador, Bandar bin Sultan. Bandar bin Sultan, who was, was very close friends with the Bush family, and even gave him a nickname, Bandar Bush. And they were getting anywhere between $4,000 to $5,000 per month to this uh, bank that was Riggs Bank, which was linked to Bandar bin Sultan's wife. The money went to an intermediary, Mawida Duijak, Went to her husband, Osama Bastan, and that money went to Khalid al-Madar and Wafa Hazmi. So, all these Saudi operatives, including Fahad al who's an imam at the King Fahd Mosque in Los Angeles, who provided lodging to Khalid al-Madar and Wafa who came to the United States in January 15th of 2000, and may have been earlier, but they he provided lodging to them. All of these people I just said lied to the FBI, lied to the 9-11 Commission, and said that. Not only did I not know these people, but I never gave them any type of money. So we covered up the fact, the FBI, and still continues to do so, regarding Saudi complicity in funding of the hijackers. We are still covering up this fact. I mean, this latest cashier files, it's not fully redacted. It's partly redacted still. And God knows how many other thousands and thousands of pages the FBI have regarding just the Saudis. Never mind the Israelis, I'm leaving them to decide for now, but just the Saudis alone. It has to be in the tens of thousands. And who knows when that will be? Will it be in the next 20 years, 15 years? Because, you know, the National Archives can lock them up anywhere between 30 to 60 years. So if they're locked up in the National Archives in 2001, 2002, well, maybe in 2000, say 38, 2040, we might see more FBI files. And they do this for a reason, because... By the year 2038, 2040, a lot of the major players that are involved with 9-11 are dead. So that's how we're covering up. And the FBI, I just recently, I interviewed an FBI, former FBI agent named, by the name of Ken Williams, who wrote the, the infamous Phoenix Memo, which was basically in a memo that outlined that there's a radical uh, jihadist groups that are training at flight schools in Arizona. And that was forwarded to uh, the FBI in the United States. He said that he is serving on the board of the lawyers' committee, I mean, um, the uh, Creedland and Creed, helping with the victims' families. And the FBI called him. Now, remember, he's retired. The FBI called him and told him to don't help the victims' families. Now, can you imagine the Department of Justice, who acts on the behest of the American people, is telling a former FBI agent not to help the citizenry of the United States The families who lost loved ones at the World Trade Center don't help them because we might offend the Saudis. I mean, this is treason. (laughs) Uh, No other way to say it, really. I mean, if I could use a lesser term, I would. But I think that's treason. But why? Ask yourself, why are they doing this? Are they doing it because they don't want you to know what they collected? Or are they on orders of the State Department because of their friendship with Saudi Arabia? And that they continue to cover up the Saudis role in the financing of certain people involved with nine eleven,
0: yeah, God forbid we uh upset the Saudis um I mean they're they're purchasing so many weapons from us that we 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 don't want to mess up that contract um, Wow, yeah, that's just I can't even imagine a uh, u.s official and like as a family member who was like directly affected by this and then that's what our supposed representatives say about us that that's right that's disgusting sure that is absolutely disgusting and deplorable that's um so so it's it's really starting to kind of come together to where it, it doesn't seem like it was planned necessarily, um, but it it seems like everything just fell into place. And it was just, it worked out the way that it did. However, it seemed like there was more than enough people that would have known about it um a million chances to be able to stop this and so it just seems like a stand down they let it happen Mm. and with so many people involved i i don't see motive is is my my big issue is is i don't i don't see motive for with so many people being involved why the stand down why let it happen what what does everyone else have to gain from keeping their mouths shut? I
1: would I would try to sum it up this way, is that 9-11 was most likely planned by these radical fundamentalists, but that the Israelis in the United States got wind of the plot through the intelligence agencies and manipulated the plot in order to be successful. Now, I did an interview with the young David Brady of Road to Providence, in which I told him that... The reasons why these attacks were allowed to happen, or you know, facilitated to happen, is because of previous foreign policy guidelines. And I mentioned, like previous guidelines, like the Wolfowitz doctrine, which was basically a doctrine that is a unilateral doctrine by uh, these dual Israeli neocon uh, government officials that wanted to subvert anti-Western uh, leaders in the Arab countries, such as Iraq and Syria, and Libya, and Iran. And it goes back to an Israeli foreign policy guideline that is basically used by a lot of these French conspiracy theorists, but has some merit, which is the Odid Yanan plan, which basically Israel saw that they were surrounded by anti-Israeli government uh, uh, countries like Iran and uh, 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 Lebanon and, and, and Syria, and they wanted to basically either implement friendly back Western leaders or basically destroy, have these countries destroyed through the U.S. military, of course, um, and basically divided to where they aren't a threat to Israel anymore. Well, later on, there were other guidelines. One is more importantly, which is the Project for New American Century, created which was created by Robert Kagan and William Crystal, which is basically a neoconservative faction. Uh, as well as dual Israeli citizens like Dov Zakheim and uh, Douglas Feit and Richard Pearl and a lot of other ghouls, you know, these war propagandists, imperialists, that's what they are, basically saw that not just the Middle East, but we wanted to control the world. And in order to do that, we need a catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. It's what French conspiracy theorists always bring up, but they use it out of context. But, you know, they got that with nine eleven. But Uh, You know, all these guidelines didn't come to fruition totally, but a lot of those foreign policy guidelines from these foreign policy parchments and agendas did come to fruition because we did destroy Iraq. We did destroy Syria, but we didn't overthrow Assad. We did destroy Libya, and um, we haven't gone to war with Iran yet. But at least, you know, a lot of the preconceived enemies to not just Israel, but Saudi Arabia, they're destroyed. Either they're destroyed totally, or that they're destroyed to a point that they can no longer be a preconceived threat to any of those countries and the United States itself and their interests. So that's what I would tell people: is that 9/11 certainly was constructed by the Arab fundamentalists, but that the Israeli intelligence, American intelligence, and Saudi intelligence knew about the plot, manipulate the plot to where it had to be successful, and they took advantage of it because. What came from it? I mean, the Iraq War, the Afghan War, the Patriot Act, uh, the National Defense Authorization of Act of 2001, 2002, 2003, the subversion of the Jimenezia Convention for Captured Enemy Combatants. I could go on the Transportation Security Act, TSA, uh, which is a federal agency that basically kicked out all the public uh, companies uh, and private companies that were uh, delegated to the uh, state and they federalized the security apparatus of the airports. So a lot of people made a lot of good money, especially the private military industrialists, uh, LG3 technologies, Boeing, Raytheon, Halliburton, with the war in Iraq, with the war in Afghanistan, later on with the war in Syria and in Libya, there's billions of dollars. We're talking about, with Afghanistan alone, it's $3 trillion. $3 trillion for 20 years. $3 trillion. It's an absurd amount. And it comes at the lives of who? Not just American soldiers, but to the lives of Muslims. And Muslims had nothing to do with terrorism. And I i didn't even mention, you know, the CIA rendition program and the black sites where they tortured these people, mostly illiterate Pashtun farmers who had no connections to any terrorist groups um, in Poland, in Germany, in e- Iraq, in Afghanistan, Abu Ghraib in Cuba, um, you know, Guantanamo Bay is still open. But yeah, I mean, nefarious. And we tortured these people. Now, as for like, The people who are involved with 9-11, like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi bin al-Sheib, Tawfiq bin Atash, or Amara Baluchi and uh, um, Mustafa Al-Snawi, those are the five involved with the financing or orchestration of 9-11. We tortured brutally. I'm talking about medieval type torture, abnormal, inhumane torture. We tortured them to the extent that they actually said that they were involved with just about every single plot ever constructed. Now, How do we know that they're telling the truth? We don't. Even if they told the truth, we wouldn't know which was the truth because we tortured them. And that's exactly what I think why the CIA did it. Because if they didn't torture them and they admitted to 9-11, they may have said something that didn't fit or covered up some things that the State Department facilitated. You understand? So if they didn't go with the... This, let's say the 9-11 commission report, word to word, hey, wait a minute, something's wrong here. But even if they admitted to it, we wouldn't still know because of the fact that we tortured them. Now, I happen to think that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed really did go to bin Laden, and he proposed that, you know, to hijack 10 planes, which was relegated to four. I might have even mentioning the additional hijackings. We don't even know if that's al-Qaeda. That could have been anybody. It could have been groups not affiliated with al-Qaeda. Who were these people? We don't know because they violated the visa and we deported them. That's the Arabs, not just the Israelis, the Arabs too. Um, We don't know because all the people that were involved, directly, intimately involved with 9-11 are either deported or they are the highest levels of government. We talk about the director of central intelligence, the director of the NSA, and maybe even the vice president. Right. They're not saying anything because if they said that they had intelligence that could have stopped 9-11, what do you think is going to happen to them? Well, they're going to be arrested, blacklisted, their families blacklisted, blackballed forever and ever. Right. Not I'm not talking about anything about justice here. They're you know, locked up for the rest of their lives, but they're not going to admit what they uh, allowed to happen or facilitate that's why they'll continue to shut up. But as for like the low-level intelligence operatives of like Israel and Saudi Arabia, we'll never know because all those people are deported and they'll never be investigated. That's the reason why they're deported.
0: Well, is that more of a, like that that was part of it the whole time? It, it, deporting some of these people so they can't be talked to or tracked down or anything?
1: Well, it's easier than killing them, sure. I mean,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly right.
1: I mean, they are intelligence operatives, whether they're high functional, high high maintenance operatives, or low level, it doesn't matter. As long as they work for intelligence, collecting data, um, they are invaluable to that extent to where it would be cost effective uh, to just have them come into country, um, have them come into country as students. Uh, under a student visa, have them violate those student visas, and in in essence, they can't be arrested for any federal crimes because if they found out that they were espionage assets, uh, you know, conducting espionage in the country illegally, well, the first crime that they commit was immigration, and so they had to be investigated by the INS, and you know, they're not they're not American citizens, so they can't be held under federal guidelines, so they're deported. I mean that's much more cost effective than saying killing all of them, which would you know that would probably cause a question. Hey, wait a minute, what's going on here, right? But no, having deported this way, they're not investigated. They won't talk to anybody, and they're in their home countries, like nothing happened.
0: Makes sense. Um, so I did want to switch gears a little bit. Wait, um, where does? Um... This is something that uh, I've listened to others speak about. Um, but where where do uh, the dancing Israelis uh, fit into all of this?
1: Yeah, the dancing Israelis, that's the media would call them. They were actually called the high fivers by the FBI. And on September 11, 2001, uh, a resident of a place called Doric Towers, which is a high rise in New Jersey, New Jersey City, New Jersey, a resident by the name of Maria who I know her last name, I won't mention her last name. She actually was looking outside the window to see the World Trade Center smoking with her binoculars. She's an older woman. And right below her is a parking lot to the Doric Towers. She looked down, she heard a commotion. While she was looking down, she saw three guys celebrating, you know, giving them high fives, hugging. And she thought that was unusual, which would be. And she looked at the, the van they were in and it was a white box panel truck and she took down the license plate. And thankfully, she did this, because when she did this, uh, she waited to call the police because she wanted to confer with her husband about what she should do. So when her husband came home from jury duty, um, she basically told him about what she saw. And he said, yes, you have to call the police. So she called the police, and they basically put out a bolo, a be on the lookout for a urban moving systems van with license plate, whatever, I forgot the name of it. But um, at 3.30 in the afternoon, approximately 3.30. Um, at the East New Jersey Turnpike, there was a white box truck, Irving Moving Systems van, that was located. Uh, that was uh, spotted by an East Rutherford policeman by the name of Scott DiCarlo. and he had a a, a, soci- a partner with him, Sergeant Dennis Ravelli. and he looked over at the truck and he saw the license plate, but it was all by one number. And then he conferred and said, "Okay, I wrote down the wrong number." He goes, "This is the truck." So when he told the truck to pull over, they pulled over, and said. Hey, guys, can you get out of the truck? And the guy didn't, the driver didn't get out. And he says, can you get out of the truck? And he didn't get out of the truck. It's not like he didn't understand English. He knew, he knew English. So they both took out their guns. And they opened up the door. And Scott the call basically dragged him out. And so the other guy, Dennis Ravelli, at gunpoint, told the other guys to come out. But at this point, now there was five people in the truck. So the driver was Sivan Kurzberg. And he had a brother, Paul Kurzberg. And the other individuals were um, Oded Elner, Yaron Schmel, and Omar Mamory. And these were all employees of a moving company called Urban Moving Systems. And when they were arresting, when they were detaining them, they weren't arrested at this point, so they were detaining them. And they brought them down to East Register Police Department. Uh, Sivon Kersberg told Scott DiCarlo in his car, we're not your problem. The Palestinians are your problem. Your problem or our problems. And I that's a pretty unusual statement to make, if you ask me. Why would he use it in that context at that time? It just it's just strange to me. Well, anyway, while they were there, the FBI got involved because these were foreign nationals and they had, you know, they were suspected of being involved with the attacks in regarding at some capacity. Because when they retrieved the artifacts out of the van, they found that there was. There was box cutters in the van. There was no equipment in the van, moving equipment. And on one person uh, in, the sock, or in the, um, the sock, I think it was of Sivon Kurzberg, they found $4,500 in cash. And they all had passports to leave the country through South America to Greece and then to Israel on stopover flights. And um, that was to happen on September 12th and 13th. So it seems that they were in a rush to get out of the country in a hurry. And not only that, they found a map of Lower Manhattan and outlined where Doric Towers, the World Trade Center, and Borough Park, which, by the way, our urban moving system there was also spotted to have been parked at. So you have all these uh, areas outlined in the map, and they basically said, all right, these guys may have known something about the attacks. So that's how the FBI got involved. So the FBI detained them for 71 days. At first, they didn't want to take lie detector tests, but they finally did and they failed them. Um, But under pressure from two unnamed senators, and I think one of them was Chuck Schumer at the time, um, acting as a mediator was Alan Dershowitz, the infamous lawyer, um, (laughs) uh, who pressured the FBI to release at the behest of the Israeli government Everybody that was detained with urban moving systems. And they were. They were deported through immigration uh, 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 violations. The FBI basically didn't want to. They held them for 71 days. So they held them for a little bit. But they said that they knew more. Now, the FBI files regarding the dancing Israelis, as well as two other Israelis for urban moving systems in Pennsylvania, which I'll talk in just a bit about. They named them the dancing Israelis. I mean, they were called the high fire but the media called them the dancing Israelis. So that's who they were referring to. Now, the FBI files, even though it's majorly redacted, it is public, and you can find it on scribd.com or archive.org. I have uploaded uh, it to my WordPress where the documents and files are uploaded. Um, you could f- look at them at your leisure. But they even omitted... One page and a half describing why the FBI is basically detaining them regarding the attacks of September 11th. Now, if they had no involvement, they wouldn't have redacted a page and a half of it. Now, the FBI would later go on to say that they knew more than what they were talking about. On September 12th, 2001, and on September 11th as well, there was two Israelis, also from Urban Moving Systems, that were moving a customer from Ohio to New Jersey. When they got pulled over because of the bolo, Pennsylvania State Police pulled them over, and said, "You know, what are you doing around here and stuff like that?" The the town they were pulled over, the city was called York, Pennsylvania. And so they said that we had a we had a client, you know, moving from Ohio to New Jersey, but in the truck it was empty. So they called the manager of urban Moving Systems. His name is Dominic Suter. And they said to Suter, uh, by the way, you have these two employees, and he named them Roy Barack and Modi Bupal. And he said, do they work for you? He said, yes. And he said, well, they, had, they said they had a client from Ohio to New, to New Jersey. Is that true? And they said, due to the prior day's events, we had no clientele outside the state of New Jersey. And so Dominic Suter told him this, and the FBI, I mean, the Pennsylvania state officer said, well, how do you explain this? And Dominic Suda basically said um, I can't. It's strange. So uh, they were detained for a month. Uh, they took Liger tech tests and passed them. Well, what's the difference about these two guys? Roy Barak and Modi Bupal worked for a separate signals intelligence company in Israel with the Israeli Mossad. They didn't work for the Mossad so to speak, but they worked for a signals intelligence unit, not 8200 but for a specific intelligence unit. And that made them much more important than, say, the dancing Israelis, because they were just, you know, data collecting uh, operatives. I don't think they worked for the Mossad. There's no proof that they did, but they were involved with intelligence, Israeli intelligence. That much we do know. But to what extent? That's what well, we don't know yet, because they got deported. Well, Roy Barak and Modi Bupal, they must have done um, some something much more um, important. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well just a few short miles away from york pennsylvania is where united airlines flight 93 crashed shanksville pennsylvania they took the same route as the same route that passes by shanksville now what i'm about to tell you is speculation only it's a theory that i'm working on along with uh, dj thermal detonator so we we believe that the pilot the alleged pilot of flight 93 ziad jara was actually an Israeli mold that was meant to integrate himself with the 9/11 plane's operation to make sure that it was successful. Now, why do we say this? Well, it's because um, that his family has a long-standing uh, history with not just Israeli intelligence, but also Libyan intelligence and with the Abu nadol organization. I've mentioned to you before. His, his cousin, Asim al-Jara, was a longtime member of Abu Nadal organization. But he also worked for Libyan intelligence, as well as German intelligence and Israeli intelligence. He was known to flash a lot of money. He was very affluent, um, very grandiose. He was a womanizer. And um, a lot of people in the Jara family uh, thought him as a very boisterous individual. But he continued to deny over the years that he worked for any intelligence But he did. Ziad also had a cousin named Ali al-Jarrah, who was a a, Jordan, um, a Lebanon school teacher for years. But what they didn't know was that he worked for the Israeli Intelligence Mossad as an operative for 25 years. And his brother, he had a brother named Joseph al Jarra, who may have assisted him for 10 of those years. So, with that being said, you have a family that has involvement, direct involvement with Israeli intelligence, as well as foreign intelligence. And this is the reason why we think Ziad Jara was an intelligence operative. Now, I have more evidence that supports this, that you know that he may not have been on a plane. I have no evidence he wasn't on a plane. I'm just saying I have evidence to show that my theory could be true, uh, which we don't know for sure. That's why I'm saying take it with a grain of salt. Flight 93 had the most phone calls made on the plane. The phone calls that French conspiracy theorists love to say it's fake. But what they don't realize is that these phone calls are the most important because they go against the official narrative of four hijackers, right? FBI, 9-11 Commission say there are four hijackers. Ziad Jara is the pilot. Said al-Ghamdi, um, Ahmed al-Nami, and Ahmed al-Hasnawi are the muscle hijackers. Well, for the first time, since the Zacharias Musawi trial of 2006, it came out that the cockpit voice recorder recorded everything that was happening in the cockpit and that they heard the hijackers themselves. Now, the transcript is public, but the audio is not. It's classified. But at no point anywhere do you hear the name Ziad Jarrah. Not only that, with the phone calls I mentioned, there are six, four from uh, passengers, two from flight attendants, And what did they say on those phone calls? They were being hijacked by three men. Not four, but three. Hmm. Three of those calls mentioned that all the hijackers were very dark-skinned males. Well, you Google Ziad Jara and see what he looks like. He looks white. Brown hair, very light brown hair, which became dark brown. Yes. So that's what we think. We think, that Ziad Jara was all the way to the operatives. And remember, Zia, more background on Zia Jara. Ziad Jara was the only hijacker a part of that operations that never lived with any of the hijackers. He lived alone. Even what made it more suspicious was that two days prior to September 11, 2001, they rented a, a, a motel called Days in Motel in Jersey, right near the airport, Newark Airport. He rented a room for himself and he rented a room for the muscle hijackers. Why would you do that? Wouldn't you want to be involved with the intimate circle of the hijackers to make sure everything goes well? I mean, I'm sure that, you know, he visited the room, but why would he rent the room for himself? He did this not just in Jersey, but he did this in Florida, where he lived. He did it in Germany, where he lived. He never was once spotted with any of the hijackers except for one tape that was recovered in Afghanistan, that was taken in Tanak Farms, which is an Al-Qaeda training camp. Now, the tape has no sound, but it has Muhammad Atta and Ziad reading a parchment, which is later transcribed to be a will. But whose will? We don't know. So it's a will of sorts. Now, I have the video, and I can't upload it to YouTube because it violates their terrorism policy about supporting terrorism. Anyway, but you could you could find it on, uh, you know, archive.org, which is a great database for video, rare videos and whatnot. But that's the only time where we saw Ziad with any of the hijacking team. So we believe that Moy Barak and Bupo went by the Shankville crash site. This is a theory. This is not true. And planted Zia Jara's passport, which was burned, and a business card belonging to... Assam al Jarrah, which on the other side had the name of an Al Qaeda associate in Guantanamo, Ramzi bin al Sheeb, who rented an apartment in Germany with Muhammad Atta and Mohammad al Shahi, the pilots of Lebanon and 175. Right there in the, in the uh, debris field. The debris field's huge, so miles long. But like, we think that that's what happened. That's the reason why they were there. Well, I mean, why else? They weren't moving anybody. You know, there was nothing in the truck. What were they yeah. doing? Even their own manager, the movie company, couldn't describe, you know, couldn't, you know, describe what they he had no um, answer for it. None whatsoever. Thought it was strange. But what I just told you there is just basically speculation. It's the theory that we're working on. Ryan Dawson's also, you know, trying to work on that too. But yeah, that's what we're working on.
0: Wow. That's, uh, yeah, thanks for that explanation. That's man it's it's just there's so much it's but it's such a fascinating story to me um what what's amazing to me is like so much of this happened no uh, so many people didn't know sure. it just happened right happening right in front of everyone and i mean we we all know the result of 911 and like i said th- this is what i was saying that uh everything just kind of falls into place because th- this s- i see why the conspiracies spread like they do sure. because everything just fits so perfectly and there are a lot of these questions um that they're they're doing the disservice by adding to it it's like sure. if any anybody who's still watching At this point, why would you need to spice this up at all? Like
1: exactly my point. You know, I had a discussion with DJ Third NetNet too long ago about, you know, the 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 unnecessary need to fantasize about the spectacular when we have spectacular information to share. And we've been trying to do it for years. But basically we get called shills and operatives because we believe planes were hijacked by Arab by Arabs. But that's not telling the whole story. You know, the problem with the French conspiracy as well is that they are against the official narrative. And the official narrative to them generally is the following. Four planes were hijacked by 19 Islamic fundamentalists and crashed them into the World Trade Center, Pentagon, Shankville, And that's it. But that is a problem in itself because that's just a microcosm of what's told in the 9-11 Commission Report. But because for years they've been told that that is part of the official narrative, that any other competing theory, no matter how outlandish, how irrational it is, as long as it's against the official narrative, it will be supported. And that's why these theories that I talked to you about with CGI planes or um, you know, swap overs or whatnot, all of these will exist in the 9-11 truth movement until they start uh, vetting the people and start correcting the information. But I think it's a lot too late now to do it because we're 21 years in the truth movement is basically near dead anyway, and the damage is already done. So I will continue to like uh, to uh, to the best of my can, as well as other nine 11 researchers. There's few of us, we're still around and we'll, we'll continue to share pertinent information with the public to try and, you know, rectify the disinformation campaign while at the same time trying to fight for information from, you know, the CIA, the NSA, the State Department.
0: Well, I can definitely say that uh, you are always more than welcome on my platform to come on and uh, talk about this. Um, Also, as as well as uh, anyone else that uh, you could vouch for um, as legitimate.
1: I mean, there's few. uh, Not to cut you off, but there was few. DJ Thorber Detonator for sure. Nelson Martins. Ryan Dawson, for sure. Um, Robbie Martin, uh, he's active still. Um, and there's upcomers. Uh, there's up and comers who I think are going to be much more prolific than myself. Uh, you know, in uh, uh Darren Harvey and Sean Russell. I think they have a bright future out of them. They're just starting, and they're, you know, Darren Harvey is basically, he just uploaded a, ch- a new channel, YouTube. And I would suggest everybody to subscribe to it. And they're going to create a podcast together. I think in the summer months they're going to try and get something done. So yeah, but very few people I would recommend. John Goldie's still active. There's another one. Um, I really couldn't. I mean, the others like Paul Thompson, Geffen, they're long gone. Like they don't, they're not active anymore because they just got fed up. Ray Lewinski is another, but he does other projects. He's incredibly busy. He's another one I would recommend as well um, to talk about length, but yeah, Ryan Dawson, Nelson Martins, those two guys for sure.
0: Yeah. I'm, I I've, I've got to reach out to Ryan, get him on the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've already had so much crossover that it's, it's about time. Yeah. So. Well, cool. I, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Okay. You know, we're, we're topping off about two hours and, uh, yeah, honestly, that, that was great. That was, uh, you no, th- it's, it's, listen
1: thank you very much for even inviting me onto your show and speaking about this issue. You know, I'll I'll talk to anybody because I feel that, you know, the more uh light we could bring on the subject is the better off and with platforms like yourself uh which I'll continue to support. Um I just became a subscriber. So thank you. I'll I'll continue to support this channel and uh cuz we need more channels like you to spread pertinent information. Uh and we need all the help we can get for sure. So
0: Well, most definitely. I mean, I, I have no problem doing this, you know, as, as long as, uh, YouTube will keep me around. Um, however I always do have other platforms because when I started this whole venture, um, you know, I kind of planned, I was like, you know, just the topics that are going to be covered, you know, I've got to have backups. So sure. Sure. So, uh, yeah, no, no matter what, there's always, there's always going to be a platform Mm -hmm. for this show. Um, there, there's there's always backups. So do you want to let everyone know where they can find you and sure. uh, what, oh, what you got I, going on?
1: Yeah. Hey, um, uh, if you Google my name, Adam Fitzgerald uh, with 911, I come right up. But um, yeah, on YouTube and Odyssey, that's my backup channel. Um, it's Adam Fitzgerald. Um, on Twitter, it's underscore Adam Fitzgerald. And from there, I have a pinned tweet where I link to all my sites that I'm available, in, like WordPress, where you can access documents and files. The, my podcast the Dark and Dower, with co-host richard cox um who i consider the backbone of the show um yeah you, i mean Dark and Dower is the podcast and um yeah everything else is adam fitzgerald but if you google adam fitzgerald 9-11 i come right up
0: and perfect and i've also linked to all of that in the episode description and uh that that will always be in whatever description uh on whatever platform you were listening to this on and uh Everybody that's made it to this point, thank you very much. Make sure and hit that like button, that subscribe button. Um, go to risetoliberty.com slash links. And that's where you can find everywhere we are on the web. At least that's currently active, minus the backups that we'll get to eventually, I'm sure. sure. So thank you again, Adam, so oh, thank much. Thank you very and, much. Uh, to have you. Thank you. Of thank course, you. anytime. And uh, we'll we'll get you back on and I'll be talking to you soon.